okay, hi everyone, welcome. Um, we're still waiting for some people to filter in, but I have uh, some housekeeping notes to start with, so I will go ahead and kick us off. Um, uh, this is the session on strengthening the social innovation ecosystem in challenging times. I'm Megan Benton, I'm the research director for MPI's international program and for, uh, for MPI Europe. Um, and my housekeeping notes are, if you have any technical problems, you can send a direct message in the Zoom chat if you're in it, uh, or Hoover uh, to Radu Triculescu from MPI Europe, or email rtriculescu at migrationpolicy.org. Uh, Radu is about to post it in the chat box. And we'll have a Q&A at the end of the session. Uh, you have a few ways to participate. You can write a question in the Hoover in the Q&A box for the session. If you joined us via Zoom, you can post your questions in the chat box. Um, or if we have a sufficiently small number, um, then um, I'd love it if you would raise your hand and then I can unmute you and um, uh, and you can unmute yourself rather and ask a question. Um, we will be recording this event, so please bear that in mind, um, whether or not you type your question or ask it live, so your questions and chat messages will be viewable by the other participants. We are talking today about the social innovation ecosystem, by which we mean the structure and the relationships between different actors that enable social innovation to happen. So the social innovation ecosystem for refugee and migrant inclusion really blossomed um, in Europe after the large inflow and arrivals in 2015, 2016, especially in large cosmopolitan cities that already had a history of welcoming newcomers and like-minded partners. Um, with access to funding and infrastructure and new technologies. Um, but I think since then, um, the social innovation ecosystem for refugee and migrant inclusion has, has both grown immensely, but also come under a few different challenges, both in Europe and North America. The first is an internal threat. And this is that rather than spreading uh, outside of these cosmopolitan hubs and and really starting to turn around skeptical communities and deliver better outcomes uh, for refugees and migrants in rural communities, there was a little bit of sort of preaching to the converted and working in primarily uh, cosmopolitan spaces. So we're going to discuss today whether we can grow social innovation beyond those cosmopolitan hubs and live up to that potential of delivering more inclusive societies for everyone, wherever they live and reaching underserved groups um, where the challenges are tougher, but the returns are potentially greater. And the second challenge I think is external. And that's the way that funding and interest tends to be tied to the idea of crisis. So we saw after 2015, 2016, that a lot of these new initiatives try to reinvent the wheel. They often work side and side rather than in concert with one another. And they didn't always kind of make it beyond that initial um, burst of enthusiasm and excitement. They didn't always attract sustainable funding. And we're seeing the same groundswell of interest in the COVID crisis and, and more recently in um, the Afghan evacuations and support for refugees coming from Afghanistan. How can we make sure that these bright ideas, this energy and enthusiasm translates into something lasting? So today we're gonna talk about strengthening these ecosystems um, in two ways. Um, one is by strengthening the private sector's role in incubating and consolidating and scaling models for inclusion uh, and making the most of migrant and refugee entrepreneurship. Uh, and, making, uh, and then second, by making social innovation ecosystems more inclusive and reflective of the communities in which they operate. So I wanted to put three questions on the table for discussion, which I'll also throw in the chat. One is, how can we expand the benefits of social inclusion um, social innovation for inclusion beyond big cities. Second, how can we encourage the private sector and other partners to consolidate existing solutions and make them more sustainable and get more continuity? And then carrying on the discussion that we were having in the plenary, what does an inclusive recovery uh, from the pandemic look like? And how can we support refugee and migrant social entrepreneurs in that regard? Uh, I'm really thrilled that we have three excellent speakers to address these questions in, in different ways. Um, first, we're gonna turn to Asma Naima from Isade Business School, where she specializes in social entrepreneurship to tackle large scale social challenges, which is a very exciting um, 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 
area to work in and also from Orange Corners which is an initiative of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in the Netherlands that provides young entrepreneurs across Africa and the Middle East with training mentorship network funding and facilities. Then we're going to hear from Brian um, Zembunya who is Economic Recovery and Development Senior Technical Advisor from the International Rescue Committee and he's advised the Business Refugee Action Network. Brian is a last minute stand-in for Eleanor Patton who's unwell so we owe him a massive thanks for stepping in at the last minute. And the Business Refugee Action Network that he'll speak a little bit about is um, a business-led coalition that seeks to improve the lives and economic opportunities of refugees. And then we have Oimama Imrai, who is pro bono legal officer at the global law firm DLL, DLA Piper. Um, and we're really thrilled to have you as well. Um, in Hoover are very long descriptions of their bios, so I'm not going through their full biographies today. I encourage you to connect through, uh, connect with them through that platform and, and read up on it there. So I'm going to start with Asma. Asma, your research looks at ways to strengthen entrepreneurial ecosystems. And one focus of this is on the idea of migrant and refugee entrepreneurs as change makers. I'm interested to hear what you think makes for um, programs to support inclusive social entrepreneurship. Like what makes them effective and what makes them sustainable? Yes, thank, thank you, you so much, Megan. I'm very happy to be here today. Uh, so the research that I did at Asada Business School in collaboration with Ashoka Hello Europe really focused on social entrepreneurs from migrant communities. So we actually looked at people who are already tackling uh, issues related to migration and already are implementing uh, their work in migrant communities, but also building a bridge between migrant communities and host communities. So uh, what we saw from the research is actually that they are very effective in, in the things that they do because they have a certain domain specific knowledge. So they know the community very well. They know the problems that uh, exist in the community very well at a grassroots level. Uh, and they also have, uh, you know, a specific network and social capital there that sometimes uh, uh, change makers from uh, host communities lack. So that's something that has uh, made them very effective. And on the other hand, they are very humane because often these people have experienced migration journey themselves. They know uh, very much how, uh, how tough it can be, but also how you can deal with that. And I think that makes their approach often very empathic. Um, so they really understand, have a deep understanding of the, of the journeys that people go through and they want to give ownership and dignity back to people instead of solving it for them. They want people to do that themselves and also uh, empower them just to, uh, to do that. So I think this is something that uh, we uh, also in our report wrote about, okay, how can we then make sure that these social entrepreneurs can uh, be supported by other actors and also how can they amplify their impact and actually learn from them. Um, and this is uh, something that has to do with the inclusiveness of the ecosystem. So the ecosystem is not, uh, in general, not very inclusive if you talk about access to resources. So when you look at the fin financial programs or investment programs, they ask for so many criteria, collateral, and different things that maybe people from my own communities not always have because they're just, you know, first generation in a new uh, country. So building specialized programs that look in a different way to change makers and social entrepreneurs can be very beneficial to give them that those finances that they need to scale and at the same time network so you see that uh, a lot of uh, migrant uh, social entrepreneurs they connect to each other they have a very good social capital but then the host country actors they operate at a, in a different network and they have sometimes more access to institutions and other powerful um, uh, institutions that they can actually create change more at a higher policy making level. So it's important that we also connect these two communities better and these social entrepreneurs can actually be a great bridge between that because they really know how to navigate in these um, in these different circumstances. So I think uh, this has to do a lot also with um, the idea of migrants being either victims that need help or being a threat uh, to society, but actually not really seen as change makers. So there's this, this perception uh, that exists uh, among certain uh, groups or people in the host country that really limits their potential and ability to scale. So I think 
especially when you talk about policy making or recommendations for other actors such as the private sector is to see these uh, social entrepreneurs for what they are actually creating uh, the impact they're creating on the ground and collaborating with them as experts and not just because of the idea of doing CSR or helping people because that also always um, limits the potential of these social entrepreneurs. So I think uh, collaborating with them as expert as you would with any other organization uh, and also uh, making sure they have a structural, uh, their voice is structurally included in, in programs and in, in collaborations and not just as tokenism. Uh, these are uh, elements that came up in our research, which, uh, which ultimately leads to uh, changing our perceptions of, of people, right? So uh, see what they bring at the table, their expertise, their capabilities is very important. So yeah, that's in, in a nutshell uh, what we focused on. Thank you so much. Um, that was really terrific and such a rich kind of overview of some of the barriers, but also opportunities that there are um, in terms of access to these programs. Um, I wanted to ask a little bit about whose job it is to sort of solve some of those problems. Um, you know, the issue of like the criteria can be quite limited or access to collateral or not being seen as change makers. Do you think there's a role for the private sector there or is this one for government um, and then what, what is the role of the private sector in supporting um, migrant and refugee-led social entrepreneurship? Yeah, I think that's a very good question. So we also looked at the ecosystem in which these social entrepreneurs actually operate. So you have different governments at different levels that have their own roles and they can be very effective when you change regulation. But the private sector, because they are a bit more... Um, effective and they can work more efficiently have actually proactively already done a lot. So I think they were one of the actors in 2015 when, uh, you know, this crisis, so-called crisis hit uh, uh, Europe, they actually managed to say, okay, maybe this is an opportunity to also build our talent base, to build our, uh, you know, young professional network and see, uh, see what we can uh, offer migrants also access to the workplace. Um, but they can do much more, as I said before, in the sense that uh, also portraying this image, they can also do a lot on uh, showing the talent, the, the effect of, you know, integrating uh, migrants and refugees in the workforce and showing, okay, what is the added value of that? I think there can be much more discourse about that in the more uh, general media, because I feel, as you said before, we're talking a lot in our own circles and we might know uh, that this is something you know so obvious but for a lot of people I don't see that a lot in the media so I think the media and the private sector together can also um, uh, focus on on what they've achieved so far since uh, since these programs have started uh, and at the same time uh, not only looking at them as employees but also as uh, stakeholders and uh, businesses that they can collaborate with, that they can source from, that they can, you know, for recruitment, they can actually um, I have one example. There's a social entrepreneur who works on recertifying refugees in the jobs that they actually already have diplomas in uh, in their home country, but those are not recognized in uh, in the host country. So working together with these kind of uh, ventures and initiatives and seeing them as a as a full business that they can actually source talent from and get the right payment for that would be uh, would be already a great change, but. What you see, especially since uh, COVID, is that uh, people only collaborate with the network that they're used to, so that they trust, so they keep going to the bigger, um, how do you say that, talent, um, talent organizations that you know link them with uh, employees, possible employees that are already known, uh, and they're a bit hesitant because they don't know these social entrepreneurs and they don't um, know what their track record is. But I think if you get past that you can actually see that it's much more effective if someone from the community itself builds that bridge so this is just one of the examples uh, that uh, that came to my mind thank you so much i want to turn now to to brian to talk a little bit about the business refugee action network um, and i was wondering if you could reflect a little bit on some of those points about the role of the private sector so so the Business Refugee Action Network is a business-led coalition that seeks to improve the lives and economic opportunities of refugees. Um, obviously, there's been a huge amount of innovation in this space in the last few years. And I'm wondering how, how the pandemic impacted 
these innovations? Was it a time of greater innovation or some of those um, tendencies that Asma talked about of people kind of retreating into what they already knew? No, thank you so much. And uh, I'm glad to be here. Uh, thank you, Asima, also for setting the stage. Yes, as you rightly put it, the Business uh, Refugee Action Network, or BRAN as we call it, was established by IRSC and a couple of other partners, including Ben and Jerry's, Virgin, the Tent Partnership for Refugees, and the B Team to improve the lives of refugees globally through the influence, action, and innovation of European businesses. The network has basically two priorities. The first one is around incubating, experimenting, and fostering innovative approaches to improve the lives of refugees. But the second one, which is critically important, is the advocacy piece around mobilizing businesses to influence key national, regional, and global policy debates. So between uh, 2019 and 2020, Brand explored the implementation of different uh, business-led approaches around employing uh, refugees. And these were done by the, you know, the members, the partners that I've mentioned. And, and they are in three categories. So the first category is around integrating refugees into supply chain. Uh, one example is the Levis brand that has trialed the pilot to integrate refugee into its supply chain by partnering with the Porto Allegro Cooperative in Italy to create and sell products made by refugee tailors. Of course, in the, uh, in the COVID time, uh, this such a, an approach was affected in so many ways, both on the supply and on the demand side. So on the supply side, production capacity at the cooperative in Italy was um, really affected with few tailors working in the workshop and some of the workforce, you know, moving uh, to, uh, be to making other items, you know, that were demanded like masks, you know, by the community. On the demand side, obviously, we know that most of the businesses were closed, so stores were closed, and you know, um, but you know, one opportunity was for for levies was also to look at e-commerce, you know, as a potential to raise their sales, which was also a good um, a good way of adapting to the to, to the pandemic. Um, another example of integrating refugees in supply chain is the one from uh, Virgin, building on its long history of advocacy on refugee inclusion. The Virgin mega store in Middle East has also trialed the pilot to integrate home accessories and other business items made by refugee artisans via the UNHCR made 51 model um, as part of you know, its product offering. Of course, the same uh, effects were, you know, both at the supply, but also at the demand side of, uh, you know, of, of the businesses were affected by the COVID. And then the next category of, uh, of uh, innovative approaches is around entrepreneurship, you know, promoting entrepreneurship of, uh, of, of, um, of refugees. Uh, the example I can cite is from Ben and Jerry's, uh, which have developed a dual track program for employment and entrepreneurship training through its ICE Academy, a program they fund together with the Entrepreneur Refugee Network, uh, or abbreviated as TAN. Definitely, yeah, COVID impacted the ICE Academy also on several fronts. Uh, one of them is uh, most of the entrepreneurs they're working with were based in the hos hospitality industry, which is one of the you know industries that we are heavily affected by 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 the pandemic by the pandemic most of the businesses is spending much of their uh, being closed and the third category is around uh, remote work uh, the Natakalam, sorry for <laughs> you know the spelling of that, it has a, an innovative model for facilitating remote employment opportunities for refugees in activities like translation and refugee services. Um, this really, for in term, when the COVID came, actually it is one of the most adopted um, approaches we can we can cite. The already their model was already facilitating remote working, and so was well suited during the uh, the. The pandemic actually they saw you know a rise threefold increase in demand for their language learning and uh, translation services and so basically it gave them an opportunity to 
you know, to diversify into different uh, uh, different services. So all I can say in a nutshell that yes, the the the, the pandemic came with uh, different opportunities and different challenges for different uh, brand members. Most of them were negatively affected because uh, most of the partners are in the sectors hospitality, tourism, transport, including aviation for Virgin, which were heavily affected, you know, now profit wise. So and, and others like Nata Kalam, who are already oriented towards providing e-commerce services, we saw a little bit of uh, increment in, in, in their services. But overall, yes, both the entrepreneurs, but also the partners, the private sector that are supporting this uh, net, the part of this network uh, were affected negatively overall during the pandemic. Uh, thank you so much. That was such a rich overview of some of the most interesting projects. I'd love it if you would post a few in the chat either now or, or later on so that we can share them with others or on Hoover actually probably if it's beyond uh, today's session. But that was really terrific. I wanted to ask a bit, I mean, you talked about the challenges that a lot of the businesses in the partnership faced with low profitability, for instance, during the pandemic. But yeah. was it difficult for brand to still get engagement from these businesses at that time? Um, and then especially at a time when, you know, in some places where migration and asylum has also been not the most popular issue in the, in the public eye. Um, what are the challenges that the brand faced, like maintaining that engagement um, during this time? Exactly. Um, and, and even, yes, we can talk about this time, but even before, I think, um, and, and I think Asima, uh, Asima, if I'm pronouncing your name right, yes, uh, it talked, uh, alluded to this. I think it's the whole perception broadly, you know, around, you know, what refugees can contribute and uh, or not, uh, and and being seen as uh, you know as threats, uh, and that is that is a continuing challenge. So for those the business leaders that are on board, it was a question of really adapting to the context and getting you know see how best to move forward. But attracting new partners and members was quite challenging, and again that goes al along the way to you know addressing this whole mindset issue how do we uh, demonstrate uh, to the to society the pot positive role even businesses can play you know in in terms of support, supporting refugee economic inclusion it's really important to 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 get them on board even before we think about you know how do we design our business models you know to to, to expand the support uh, towards the, towards the employment or income um, of course, bottom line to that is really making the business case for, for what we are talking about. Is, is it, and for businesses, that is very important. Is it profitable? Does it make business sense, uh, you know, to, to, to work with refugees or to employ refugees or to create opportunities for refugees? But luckily, we have more evidence coming up, you know, to support that business case. For example, uh, one survey of more than 7,000 diverse US consumers analyzed consumer perception of business leadership on refugees and showed that business support for refugees always, almost always had a net, a net positive effect on purchase intentions. So meaning that most consumers, yes, there is an opportunity that a good number of consumers are actually interested to, to purchase or procure items if they know that actually, you know, those items are, or the businesses are supportive of, of refugees or other dis displaced population. Another study by McKenzie found that ethically diverse businesses are more 35% more likely to financially outperform their national industry medians. You know, that is also a selling point or makes a, a business case around diversity. So can we attract more businesses to join, you know, on, on that front of diversity? And in another study also to, to support the whole diverse line by Deloitte found that 80% of employees from across different industries indicated that inclusion was important when they are choosing employers. So all those are lines, so we are seeing even from employees. So for businesses, if you want to attract good employees, probably it's interesting that you, ha you, you have a diverse, inclusive you know, approach to, to, to your business practices. And then the, the third example I want to highlight is around, you know, retention. A research by the Fiscal Policy Institute and the Tent Partnership for Refugees showed that of 29 employers interviewed, 73% reported a higher retention rate for refugees than uh, for employees overall. So all this is, I think, is, is either 
these are all to support you know this whole um to, for us to make the business case there is a lot of work uh, for us to encourage and you know demystify some of those myths around employing um uh refugees which we think are as the factors in the way for us to expanding and bringing more private sector on board thank you so much you. that was that was terrific um i'm gonna turn now to uh Omeima. Uh, so your law firm dla piper launched a program called know your right uh, which helps asylum seekers and refugees advocate for themselves and, and you and you coordinate that and i was wondering um who you work with in this program and, and what has it taught you about the kind of partnerships between businesses and social enterprises that are working best uh, in the area of inclusion? Thank you so much, Megan, for uh, the question and thanks uh, a lot for organizing this and inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here today. Uh, so, yes, uh, uh, at DLI Piper, we deliver uh, Know Your Rights program, which is a legal educational program for refugees and asylum seekers, where our lawyers uh, teach these communities about uh, their rights under uh, uh, the legal system in the host country. Uh, we run this in UK, Europe, and other locations, and uh, our partners are usually NGOs working in the field, supporting refugees and asylum seekers. and. Um, to answer your question about this partnership between uh, private sector uh, firms and uh, NGOs working in the field, uh, I would say that uh, um, I think everyone knows that uh, corporations and NGOs could be very different in terms of their goals, structures, motivations, and uh, uh, cultures, maybe. Um, uh, they might enter into like a collaboration or relationship with uh, each other with uh, uh, different objectives. This is absolutely fine, as long as both have a common goal, let's say, which is in our case for Know Your Rights program, it's to uh, uh, legally empower the refugees and asylum seekers to help them to know their rights so they can better advocate for themselves and uh, integrate uh, uh, easier in the society. So I think uh, common goals and shared values has made our relationships with all NGOs we working uh, uh, with to deliver Know Your Rights in all locations, uh, uh, whether in the UK or in Europe, uh, like uh, very mature and strategic relationship, if I can describe it. I think the condition under which partnerships between uh, um, like private sector firms and social uh, enterprises or NGOs uh, in the area of inclusion work uh, uh, work best uh, when this collaboration actually based on um, uh, cooperative uh, spirit maybe and also uh, mutual respect and when the long-term um, stability and impact is the most important motivation for all parties. And this is the case with our uh, programs to support refugees and asylum seekers. Um, and I think the successful cooperation and relationships are usually uh, based on sharing expertise and knowledge, building credibility, let's say, and also goodwill. Um, this will lead to uh, tangible business value for the company and uh, uh, measurable contribute to uh, measurably contribute to the induced uh, uh, social purposes as well. For example, with Know Your Rights program, um, uh, this program was designed uh, to like fill a, to fill a gap in the services provided for refugees and asylum seekers, and uh, we want to be able to recognize this gap without having uh, discussions and conversations with induced uh, working in the field who are experts who knows better about these communities and who knows what they need and how can businesses like uh, DLI Fiber. Uh, uh, would help or contribute. Um, and this is what makes any firm a responsible business is to uh, try to collaborate and uh, help uh, uh, like uh, NGOs and uh, people who are already in the field understand more about the issues and the challenges faced by these communities. And I believe this is what makes Know Your Rights a unique program. Uh, thank you so much. Um, it's very interesting to hear about the positive spillover effects of some of these programs. So it's not just the benefits for, for your law firm or for the direct beneficiaries, but also the kind of partnerships um, that it builds. And I was wondering if a similar model would work for other 
businesses and whether there's um, a kind of broader case for these kinds of programs and helping to strengthen businesses' role as an agent of inclusion. Um, I believe uh, um, it's possible for uh, uh, other businesses to uh, uh, to go into this kind of relationship and, and uh, cooperation with NGOs. Uh, it depends on actually uh, how uh, people in charge see things and how um, what's their approach. For example, um, at DLI Piper, uh, there is a belief that uh, it's very important to have uh, right holders and uh, stakeholders engage in all pro bono work or all uh, initiatives they are planning uh, to support uh, like uh, inclusion of refugees and uh, uh, the work in this area um, that we believe that uh, uh, communicating with the right holder and stakeholders will allow us to learn more things uh, not only uh, uh, like just a perspective on particular issues but uh, uh, this can lead to provide a new insight on issues and topics and improve work strategies, work strategies in general. And this is applicable for all other uh, type of businesses or companies. Um, uh, I believe it, it's very important. Um, for example, uh, I am a refugee in the UK and uh, Know Your Rights is a program for refugees by refugees and the idea of DLI Biber to have a refugee leading in one of their program, I believe, uh, made uh, a difference uh, in their relationship with the Indians and also um, give example uh, uh, for other uh, uh, businesses who would like to do something uh, in collaboration with Indians or uh, with uh, uh, some engagement of the right holders. Um, so yes, uh, I believe such approach uh, uh, helps making uh, um, like more informed decision about uh, uh, what projects will work better and what's needed and also uh, uh, help uh, uh, us to uh, have clear idea about uh, how we can make a tangible uh, a difference or a contribution in this society. I hope I answered your question. Yes, absolutely. So the program is called Know Your Rights, but actually it teaches um, your company to know so much more than that. It's really um, an informative tool on both sides. That's really nice to hear. Exactly. Um, I want to open the floor for discussion. I'm going to ask um, our panelists if you want to ask questions of one another. But before that, friends um, joining us, would you mind switching on gallery view and turning on your videos if you are able to so that we can all wave to each other and see who is on right now um <laughs> all right people are uh, not always up for putting their videos on but um um it would be great if you could um uh, start thinking about your um your questions that you want to ask and you are very welcome to either ask them in the the chat function in hoover um or to turn on your video and ask one too so please feel free to put your hands up um, or to unmute yourself and shout i think we have a sufficiently small number of participants that um, it won't degenerate into total chaos <laughs> um, but i um wanted to ask our panelists if you have any reflections on what you've heard from the others any questions that you want to ask or any topics that you think we should cover in in um, the half an hour or so we have for discussion um asma i can uh, one thing that came to my mind is that uh, there are two cases uh, when you talk about uh, migrant and refugee inclusion. Uh, it's the business case and it's the social case. So it's your uh, it's what benefits a, a, a private sector, but also the ethical side of it, right? So I think that is something that we need to be very aware of uh, when we talk about it. So it's not. Um, I think it matters how you see it. So for example, one thing that uh, is a concept very much also from the literature is uh, that uh, people who come from different countries migrate to another country for whatever reason, they have a different way of looking at the society because they have different references. They have different institutional contexts that they bridge so they can see opportunities where others may not. And I think this is something that is very beneficial for especially large corporations who operate internationally, uh, but also in this more globalized world that we're living in right now. Uh, but something that always then you know, comes up in my mind is I shouldn't only focus on the business case because it's also your ethical responsibility. And I was really wondering with the two other speakers, how do you balance 
that when you talk to businesses or you try to convince them, how do you, yeah, how do you keep the balance in a way? Because yeah, you have to convince them also. So that's hard sometimes. Yes, yeah, that's, that's a my terrific point. No, no, please, please go ahead. I thought um, sometimes participants need a bit of prodding, but you were ready to jump in, so please. <laughs> uh, no, I just wanted to uh, completely agree with Asma and uh, uh, to say it's not an easy uh, job uh, at all uh, for me. Uh, for example, I'm from a Fiji background and I'm working with uh, um, a firm and uh, um, I, I know that the private uh, sector could have like um, uh, their uh, own uh, aims or agenda. They uh, care about the brand name, etc. And uh, there are so many uh, priorities. However, uh, uh, I believe uh, it's again um, I really uh, like the approach when uh, uh, a firm like for example a big firm or international firm like the Biber, when they realize that it is very important to make a balance between um, uh, what they wanted to achieve and how uh, they could be a responsible business and have this social uh, responsibility uh, it, it, it could be sometimes a little bit tricky but uh, most of the time when uh, you uh, can like uh, express the important things or highlight how uh, um, uh, it's valuable, for example, to do uh, a particular job in a particular area, uh, this uh, this will be um, uh, accepted. For example, uh, my experience as a refugee has given me the uh, capacity to gain an accurate and deeper understanding of differences within the refugee community and uh, how it, we shouldn't uh, uh, ignore any differences within these uh, communities and how we should uh, like address the needs of, for example, LGBTs, disabled refugees, uh, women uh, differently and pay them uh, different uh, or give them different type of, uh, of support. Uh, I, I believe that as long as there is a dialogue, there's a conversation, uh, uh, things will become better and easier and uh, the balance will be uh, achieved somehow. Um, I wondered if you could take that question next and I was also wondering if you know, you spoke a lot about the McKinsey study on profitability and the study on higher retention. Do these messages work for everyone or do you have to have a slightly different case that you're making depending on the kind of organization, their size, you know, whether they're an SME, etc.? Exactly. I mean, that's an important discussion, really. Is it all about uh, the business case or not? And why we bring it up to the, you know, to the discussion is because that's kind of the language uh, entrepreneurs like to listen to fast before you know you go to the other so it's again built off the negative perception that i mentioned earlier and the negative messaging that we we have so it's one of the you know a few positive messages you want to slide in obviously it's not the same language for everybody it depends on the history of the organization and uh, you know what they believe in what's in their mission what's their diversity inclusion and equity goals and things of that of that nature so it's, it's again it's part one of the options but obviously it's not the only option and sometimes you need to support it with again building off their corporate social responsibility etc so it's a package of, of kind of, of a, or a package of communication uh, in that communication strategy so showing yes the social side of, of things but also yeah it's not all about social good but rather there is also something you know uh, on the business side of things so it's um it, i don't want to, to play it the mathematics way but rather it's a blend of, of, of different approaches again listening to the company what what makes more interesting for them is it really does diversity does inclusion does profit what really drives them and then using that really to show them that okay if you do um it uh, this way then obviously you you can actually strike both uh you can have two two goals uh short so mostly i think that's how we we already they go together you can dissect them does it also depend on who you're speaking to in a company? So sometimes you'll be having a conversation with corporate social responsibility arm versus an HR department. Does it just make a difference kind of like which of the silos you're able to engage with? Exactly, exactly. I mean, it's all mindset. It's all in, in the head. If, uh, if uh, somebody has already the, the bias in their head and then you're trying to talk about their switch off and they're not, you know, advocating. So I think there is um, 
there has to be some intentionality to understand actually what the company believes in and who would be the right entry, what would be the right entry points, you know, to kind of sell the message around. Uh, for like, you know, for the brand, you know, having, uh, and also sometimes, you know, you play the, um, you know, the kind of the catch up game. So if, if for example, you are a comp, you know, you use the competitor that you've managed to win on, on to such a, a platform or a discussion or a coalition, and then, you know, you can, you can actually show, look, your competition is on it there. Uh, and, you know, it would be, make more sense for you to join. And you look what they're doing, you know, all these examples I'm trying to give from Levi Strauss, from Virgin, from, you know, they, they kind of help also to make the, kind of the social case to show that if your competition can do it, obviously you can do it. And definitely they're not certainly making losses or they, are, they have a better outlook in the marketplace. So if you join them, if you join us and we work together, probably the impact will even be um, stronger. So I think it's a, a lot of um, um, advanced preparation, knowing what the company believes in and, and then find the right entry points to really engage them to see that, you know, this uh, can be, because at, at all points, we're always countering negative perceptions, negative mindsets and, and all that need a, a kind of uh, an innovation itself to, to really get over that barrier. Thank you. Complicated work and important to design messages very, very carefully. Um, Omaima, do you want to ask a question to the other panelists? Uh, just a second, sorry about that. Uh, uh, actually, actually, no, but I just uh, uh, would like to uh, say that uh, what uh, uh, they are doing is very interesting and uh, um, like, uh, 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 very important and I would be happy to have further conversation with both of you. Yep. Great, thank you. Um, we have a question from Ryan Figueredo. And Ryan, is it possible for you to unmute and ask your question or would you like me to ask it for you? I don't know if you're, oh yes, great. The floor is hey, yours. Everyone. Thanks, Megan. Um, I won't turn on my camera. I'm having dinner. <laughs> uh, it's quite late here. Um, yeah, I think um, I think the focus of this conversation has been predominantly around the formal sector, and I think for the constituency that my organization serves, which is LGBTI, we are finding ourselves increasingly in the informal or gig economy. Uh, COVID nineteen has also taught us that there are now a lot of digital nomads around, uh, you know, moving all across the region and, and internationally as well. And it's really important to think of how we create uh, an ecosystem uh, that is a fit for purpose for this very nebulous group of uh, of individuals who are, you know, technically migrants, economic or otherwise. Um, and um, there is there has really been no focus thus far uh, on this group. Uh, they're not even counted in in many instances. Many countries have come up with now uh, digital nomad visas, which is a really interesting kind of shift in the way countries are thinking about taxing <laughs> these individuals, right? And perhaps this is an entry point to kind of count and be counted and to understand what their specific vulnerabilities are, uh, how they are integrating, how they are connecting with, uh, you know, um, with, with local communities. I think it's something to think about. Over, thanks. Uh, well, thank you so much. I think those are two quite different challenges uh, in different ways. So we have um, the gig economy, which is often rather vulnerable people, well, not vulnerable, but they, you know, they are at risk certainly of not being included within normal social protection uh, frameworks, which obviously became such a huge challenge with the pandemic. But this digital nomad trend, um, my understanding is that a lot of countries have tried to use these programs as a way to sort of bridge the gap between no tourists, um, at a time of pandemic. And so they're not necessarily the most vulnerable, but they are really challenging what it means to kind of belong <laughs> and how long you stay for and how you're embedded in local institutions. Um, so perhaps we could take those two questions separately. Um, uh, and do we have any volunteers for either? Otherwise I will go to Asma because you're smiling. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, so I think it's very relevant, the point you're making, because uh, it adds another layer to the complexity uh, that we're dealing with. So the, for example, the social entrepreneurs from my study that I spoke to were all uh, people who seek asylum 
uh, formally. So they were registered. They uh, had an, like a an, um, social security number, and uh, even they had difficulties in opening. You know, like a business, or you know, it depends really much on the country. What is allowed? How long do they have to wait? What kind of status do they have to have? So I think for the people who don't have that, uh, and they're really in the informal market, or they're still waiting. Um, I'm not even sure if the private sector, if we're going to link it to that theme, can actually access uh, those groups. So there's, I think, yeah, I think that's something that um, that's even more difficult. I know that during COVID, at least Portugal uh, decided to give people who were waiting for their status, a social security and a healthcare, which was a, a huge step because it actually made them more formal. Uh, that was something that 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 created a positive effect. But I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking and processing how the private sector can then actually access them if they're not recognized. Um, Brian or, or Mema, would you like to take this point? Yeah, I think you no. Know, I mean, it, it's uh, it's a very great question, and uh, I, I want to say that we've really gone down to you know to see the specific subcategories even within the you know within the refugees. But in some of uh, the initiatives that I mentioned, with, with uh, for example, with the IC Academy, where you know this program of supporting entrepreneurship training, and obviously when you're trained as an entrepreneur, you have a good idea. Then obviously. You, you start now following all the other you know resources you need to put that uh, idea to action you know access to to finance of course if you're not recognized you don't have documentation you will not access that you know the social networks which are very important if you are you know excluded definitely all those come into play at uh, at another level uh, and definitely adds to the complexity and uh, how successful um uh, so, you know the entrepreneur can be but um in terms of uh, you know what can we do about it uh, so i'm thinking about um for example in this um you know network we have uh, leaders from some of the you know socially inclined uh, uh organizations who can really do a, a little bit of uh, uh speaking to the plight of some of these people so it's really advocates how can we make make it really more inclusive how can we make them you know you know benefit from the rights that all others have of course they are all refugees but rights to work uh, and you know and access to all the documentation so it's uh, for the context where it's really a big barrier and uh, seen as a hindrance for them to progress then uh, you know bringing in some of these uh, uh, bigger voices to really speak to it probably can influence the change but I have to acknowledge that it's another layer of complexity when you're trying to especially when you're trying to pursue employment or entrepreneurship for refugees. Thank you. Um, I just want to add, uh, I completely agree with all of uh, what Asma Brian mentioned, but uh, um, I just want to confirm that uh, employment uh, uh, could be the, uh, the biggest challenges for uh, challenging for uh, refugees and asylum seekers. And uh, I believe uh, uh, private sector uh, funds can do or can contribute to uh, uh, like uh, help uh, with this um, by so many uh, means. Uh, I would just give an example of an initiative that uh, um, we are uh, uh, like uh, running at the Alive Fiber. Uh, we realized that uh, there is uh, um, a gap in terms of uh, uh, professional uh, mentoring and support for refugees who would like to start their businesses or get to employment uh, uh, in the host country. So uh, we uh, designed this uh, uh, mentoring program. It's uh, mentoring uh, we call Women in Law for Women Refugees, just uh, for women participants for the first edition, uh, who uh, can benefit from the, uh, the professional skills of the lawyers, the DLI fiber, uh, from their knowledge, from their network, uh, so they can work together to identify challenges, to work in developing plans, to uh, 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 like access people, access information, access uh, um, uh, like uh, events, uh, be able to recognize what courses are available there, who, who can provide grants for refugees, who can uh, help them to understand or to educate them financially. So I believe that even if it was like a, um, a small initiative, but more and more could be done by uh, other firms and private. And just something that came to my mind, because 
I agree. Uh, you can do a lot and maybe it's not formalized. So it's okay if, if it's then that's something you have to deal with, but that's, you can start somewhere. I think that's good. And it reminded me of one of the people I spoke to who was actually looking at unaccompanied minors uh, who were entering and were not allowed to work. And they uh, yeah, suffer a lot of also uh, mental uh, issues because uh, they are young, they have been through a lot, but also at the same time, they're not able to integrate in society. So this creates a lot of issues for people. And um, yeah, this social entrepreneur, you couldn't uh, stand it anymore because he was uh, so much connected with them that he just started uh, to take them on as interns. So he found like this loophole that internships and just did a lot of advocacy, as Brian said, to just make sure that they could stay on and show the impact on the human lives that he was making. And then actually very locally, not uh, nationally, was allowed to keep continue his work until it actually became uh, allowed to take on interns in that uh, society. So actually he did it first, proved that it worked and then changed legislation instead of waiting uh, for legislation to change and do the advocacy. So I think you probably need to work on two layers, but you can't wait until it's it's formalized. And I think that was a really good uh, example and very, uh, I think, powerful way of of acting in a very complex uh, situation. Thank you very much. Um, uh, um, Irene or Irene, I don't know how to pronounce your name, apologies. Would you like to um, intervene? I saw you unmute yourself before. Great, thank you. Thank you so much, and Megan, for the question, and thank you to Ozma and Imama and Brian for your excellent interventions. I have to be honest, this is one of my favorite breakout sessions of the of the conference so far. So thank you both so much. Um, I just want to second what Ryan has brought up around um, <clears throat> displaced and migrant populations that have multiple intersecting vulnerabilities, which means that sometimes in the more mainstream interventions that are developed for, you know, getting displaced people and humanitarian migrants into the labor market, there are some groups that are going to be overlooked. Uh, for example, LGBTIQ plus people, but also people with disabilities, older persons, or as Asma just mentioned, you know, minors or people that are youth. So I'm, what I'm hearing from you is that there's a lot of dynamism and energy, both from civil society and from you know, the private sector, such as DLA Piper, or the constituencies that you're in contact with, ASMA, in addition to the IRC, um, to really facilitate this and promote this. But my question is, you know, what has your experience been advocating with government at any level, whether it's municipal or state or national in promoting this? Because I feel like the private sector can only go so far without some kind of regulatory framework from the state. So I'd be really curious to hear what your experiences have been with that. Thank you. Terrific question, thank you. Um, can we go to Brian first? No, thank you so much. I mean, that's a terrific concern in a question. Yes, uh, obviously, yeah, normally we forget about the enabling, enabling environment and addressing all those barriers more from a, you know, a macro uh, level. Definitely, there is a role for policymakers in creating an enabling environment for refugees or migrant inclusion. For example, across Europe, refugees face specific barriers to accessing employment, for example, qualification equivalence, job matching, or just even accessing just the formal labor market. So we see an opportunity, especially when you know, it comes to uh, business-led innovation, which Brian is, is, uh, is, is promoting, to you know, use that platform really to address some of these uh, obstacles. Uh, for example, around simplifying some procedures and requirements for qualification re re recognition or building some solutions, you know, which make it easier. I like this example from Germany, uh, the BQ portal, which provides information regarding assessment of refugee qualification from several fronts. So, you know, some of those innovations that I think when you're speaking to policymakers, we really need to show them examples. Like Asma said, let's start with the doing 
doing and then go to the policymakers with some examples where has it worked you know to what extent you know what what kind of impact will it have and again if we have a bigger voice through partnerships with other you know private sector even civil society i think making the the voice even bigger you know that's that's what uh, policymakers or polit politicians decision makers want to hear who is pushing for this who has done it and where has it where have they done it what examples of where it has worked i think for us that's you know that's the route that we've seen certain changes happening within Europe, but also within, um, you know, in our programs in Africa. Here, you know, in Uganda, the country where I come from, we had this uh, issue around uh, in one of our projects trying to promote uh, refugees access to finance. And again, it was just a procedural issue in the know your customer considerations, all clients were supposed to get national identity cards, which obviously for refugees is something that they can't come to. And of course, it re it caused a lot of, um, you know, talking to showing the potential of refugee entrepreneurs who have businesses, who have the potential to generate, you know, money for the banks or financial institutions, but also to even employ locals that, you know, that was softened so they could, you know, open bank accounts with refugee cards. So, and again, a lot of advocates, a lot of talking, a lot of showing examples that actually ultimately you get some, some of these obstacles lessened or, or moved uh, to the side. Omaima, I wanted to ask you, thank you, Brian. <laughs> that was really interesting. Um, Omaima, I wanted to ask you whether you faced any regulatory barriers yourself um, in setting up Know Your Rights, but also about this kind of broader question of what government should be doing in that space like it what did you feel like there was a gap that you were serving that should perhaps have been ideally filled by government um thank you so much uh, megan for uh, uh, this for the opportunity and for the question from the beginning so um we didn't know we didn't know you right there was no uh, like uh, really uh, uh, like struggle to run or deliver the program it just was uh, something we realized as a gap in services. Uh, government tries to uh, to provide information for refugees and asylum seekers, but it seems that what is there is not enough. So, uh, uh, as a, uh, as a as a firm or as a part of the private sector, uh, it's, it's it's our responsibility as a law firm to uh, try to help and fill these gaps. Uh, um, and also, it, it's kind of uh, um, our position as a law firm make us sit in the middle as a kind of organizer uh, to provide the platform for all stakeholders, including NGOs and uh, government as well. Uh, so it's it's kind of we are sitting in a natural zone where we have access to all stakeholders and we are at arm's length to all uh, of them. Um, we believe this is uh, our uh, strength and we are using it for the benefit of the refugees. And I think this could be, uh, this role could be played by so many other uh, big firms within the private sector, as uh, um, I mentioned. Uh, Yes, we have. We are kind of action oriented, and we have resources. Uh, a big firm like DLI Biber have access to, uh, uh, like, uh, uh, government department people, uh, policy at policy making uh, level. So it's it's very important um, for us to uh, kind of. Uh, make it easier to uh, uh, have those people uh, uh, involved and also to create links between the NGOs and the uh, government uh, institutions and uh, bodies. Uh, we believe uh, uh, this is very important when design any projects uh, to uh, like kind of uh, uh, achieving a, a bigger impact and uh, have uh, uh, more uh, uh, contributions and also set a role for our commercial clients and other people in the private sector who could be interested uh, um, in helping uh, uh, these uh, communities. So um, I believe um, that the acknowledgement and the focus on these strengths that private sector firms have is key, uh, not just to starting uh, innovation to inclusion, including all the stakeholders, including the government everywhere, but also in making uh, any initiatives sustainable and have more impact. Thank you so much. And Asma, you started off with a sort of provocative point about um, on, on this topic, which was about the fact that 
um, programs that serve social entrepreneurs often lack the conditions for people from diverse backgrounds to participate. Um, what do you think, how can you overcome some of those barriers and what does, you know, um, um, the role of government look like um, in, or, or are those on-ramps better provided by other actors? So if I understand your question correctly, it's about the programs that want to create an inclusive uh, ecosystem, right? So it's yeah yeah the, sorry the ones that you started talking about i mean um you couldn't answer irene's question any way you want i was just very interested myself in this question of you know if there are barriers to entering these programs whose job is it to kind of ah, create okay. the, yep. the conditions for entering them is that government or um you know are there are there other partners who are better placed yeah i think that what what i think i was mostly my experience was that uh, there are a few actors that are easily, uh, easily tar you can easily target them. So, for example, a local uh, government, municipalities are much quicker, more uh, connected to grassroots communities. So it's, it's also about, you know, where do you want to invest your time and energy in to advocate for more inclusiveness? I think start locally is actually the best way. And then you can build on this, uh, you know, portfolio of uh, solutions and scale them and promote them and advocate them. But waiting for national governments to create uh, policies, it takes a very long time. So you have to do that as well. But I think um, yeah, that's a very long game and it is also very political and it has a lot to do with the current climate and, and the voting and etc. So just to stay out of that and also uh, focus more on direct impact right now for people who need it, I think locally is very important. Then you have uh, NGOs versus private sector. NGOs are doing a, a very good job, but often they have no uh, resources or they're dependent on grants. And this also creates different incentives for them and even sometimes can lead to competition with social entrepreneurs or actually refugee-led organizations, which creates this really um, weird situation when two people with the same goal are you know, competing instead of collaborating. So I think there are some programs now, especially by the European Commission, that put in incentives that you have to have refugee active refugee participation, uh, collaboration consortiums before you can apply for grants. So these kind of things can already change kind of the ecosystem, I think, uh, to be more effective. And I think the private sectors, as was already mentioned by the others, has uh, this advantage of being more quick, being more agile, uh, you know, and I think uh, so you need everyone, in my opinion, but there are some points that you can pressure maybe more uh, for direct uh, or more yeah, quick uh, solutions uh, and then and some that take a very long time and, you know, needs to build, build up. So that's that's how I see the ecosystem. But in the end, you know, you have to work on all all levels at the same time and uh, and you need to do that in collaboration you so that's that's something that i found especially when a lot of um, startups were founded in big uh, cities in europe um, i sometimes felt there was uh, a lot of competition also and sometimes that's good because people get innovative and but um, it has also his, its limits, I think. And I think we have come at a point where you have so many different initiatives that you need to consolidate also the efforts of people to make sure that we are uh, moving forward. I think that that's the point we're at. Thank you so much. Um, so um, uh, do any of the speakers have any burning points that you'd like to finish with? Um, otherwise I will go into my closing remarks and my housekeeping notes. Brian or Mayma? I think, I mean, I just want to underline the last point from Asma around consolidation. Yes, obviously, and in a network like Brand, we have many, uh, of course, like-minded um, entities, but from different, you know, private civil society and all that. So we need, and I'm sure there are many other that are outside the brand network. So it's really consolidating. This is a big, a big task. We need to raise the voice. We need to have a bigger voice. We need to speak, you know, to these uh, uh, kind of people. And, and and obviously this problem is only growing bigger as we see the humanitarian situation escalating in all, you know, locations and, you know, numbers. So we really need to have more, um, you know, bigger support and more clear agenda really in, in, in supporting uh, refugee inclusion at, at, at all levels. So, but having the private sector, obviously, as we go this journey, I think is um, a major must for, for us. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you to all of you. This has been such a rich 
panel, I just wanted to give you my kind of five takeaways that I scribbled down. Um, I, this has been a very rich discussion and I would never um, try to summarize it, um, uh, but uh, some of the things that I've noted are the importance of tailoring messages to different companies and actors, but also thinking about the best level of government where you can affect change most effectively and having a strategic advocacy approach. The second was the need to understand intersectional vulnerabilities, whether gender, LBDQI, unaccompanied minors and able to work, thinking about people who are on the margins for various reasons, whether because in the gig economy, the informal economy, or digital nomads, this emerging trend. And the third is thinking about programs, um, not just to serve social entrepreneurs, but the conditions um, whereby they can participate, so the on-ramps to such programs which as Asma said, can sometimes even be exploiting little loopholes, like allowing people to, to come in as interns in the first instance. Um, fourth, um, the spillover effects in building partnerships with which uh, Asma started with, um, but also thinking about the importance of the private sector and government in, in consolidating and, and, and supporting networks among different initiatives as well. And then fifth, thinking about the regulatory context, whether this is you know, efforts to simplify qualification recognition, but also the role of government in um, creating the conditions to build the ecosystem um, and how to engage diverse groups, including through those collaboration requirements for receiving funding um, that Asma spoke about. So thank you so much, everyone. Um, we can continue this discussion on Hoover um, and in coming days, we'll post the recording from, from this session, but also the other breakout sessions, which I was really sad to miss. Um, on rural communities and on digitization. Um, next on the agenda, there is a 15 minute break. Um, so the last session, the plenary session, innovation within government, rethinking and modernizing integration policy will take place at uh, five o'clock Brussels time, which is 11 o'clock DC time. Um, thank you so much, everyone. This has been a really rich uh, discussion. Uh, thank you for your time and have a good day.